I ask that you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text which comes from the book of Revelation as we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. Revelation chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. Please, brothers and sisters, if you would, hear with me then the reading of God's holy word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 12, he there exhorted the Christians to live in accordance with the will of God so that they might walk properly before outsiders. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, He there exhorted the believers, His disciples, to let their light shine before others so that they might see their good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. Again and again in Scriptures, what do we see? But believers are exhorted and implored to live as Christians in the world. To walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Not only before the eyes of the world, but also within the church. And rightfully so. Rightfully so. If by the same power that Christ was raised from the grave, you have been raised to newness of life through the first resurrection and regeneration and being raised from death to life, then shouldn't it be visible to the eyes of the world? But, but, what happens when that high Christian calling that we have been called to is only that? Is only visible to the eyes of the world? What happens when we are so focused upon the world? When we are so focused upon what the world thinks about us? When we are so focused and wrapped up and caught up in how we portray ourselves before others, in how others see us and view us, that we lose focus ultimately 
of who the Christian life is lived for and why we live the Christian life. And we all have experienced, I think, brothers and sisters, in exactly what it is I'm describing. Right? And being so concerned about portraying an image that isn't true of us internally, but we want to show it off before others externally. I think we all have experience in living in the way which I'm describing. I'm sure many of us have had perhaps a disagreement or an argument with a spouse or a co-worker or a sibling or a friend and then right after that argument you walk into a room full of people and before resolving the argument and full of that bitterness and anger still, what do you do? You walk in there together with great smiles on your faces. Happy. Why? Because you're trying to impress the people who are before you. You want to give off this image, portray this image that everything is good in your life. right? That everything is great. That things can't be better. But what you are doing is you are putting on a face. You are putting on a show. You are putting on a front. Trying to show something externally to others that is not inwardly true. I grew up with with two other brothers. I'm the, the middle of three brothers. And oftentimes, when we got angry with one another, we would wrestle. And unfortunately, our room was on the second floor and our parents on the first floor. And so sometimes when we wrestled, it could get very loud. And our parents would call for us. They'd call us by name. And as soon as they did that, we knew we were in trouble. And so what did we do? We looked at each other real quick. We got our story straight. We walked down the stairs hand in hand smiling with one another, acting as if everything was fine. We were just goofing off, fooling around. We're not, it, there was no fighting really going on. Right? Why did we do that? Why did we put on that face before our parents? Because we didn't want to get in trouble. Right? We didn't want to be punished. Right? But I think perhaps, brothers and sisters, the worst condition to be in is actually to believe that lie that you are telling. Not just to tell it knowing that it's not internally true, but to tell it and actually believe that it's internally true of you. You know, this past week I was looking at a a 2020 Pew Research poll. And there it said that uh, today only 65% of adults in the United States would consider themselves Christian, which is down from somewhere in the 70% range in the years past. And what... I also read in that same 2020 Pew Research poll is that only 49% of those who consider themselves evangelicals attend church regularly. Only 49%. And of those who identify themselves as evangelicals, 27% said they never attend church. Do we see that over a quarter of the people who identify themselves in this country as evangelical, in this, at least in this poll here, do not attend church? But it caused me to think, well, if, if they were bold enough to call themselves evangelicals, even though they don't think it's important to be in the corporate worship of God's people, worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day, Right, if they thought themselves evangelicals, then surely many of those people who could call themselves evangelicals 
must be deceived likewise internally. Right? Actually believing that they can be evangelicals and never show their face at church. Right? Never come to worship the Lord with God's people. And brothers and sisters, I want us to see that this is the same condition of the saints in the church in Sardis. Right? They are deceived by their own spiritual condition. Right? Up to this point, Christ has had John pen four letters. But it's this fifth letter that we need to see that the condition of the church is by far the worst of them all. Each letter usually starts in what way? We usually see Christ right, give to them a self-designation. And then what follows the self-designation that He offers to the church? Commendation, doesn't it? We read to the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. To Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, yet you are rich. To Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. To Thyatira, I know your works of love and faith and service and patient endurance. But to Sardis, right after Jesus begins to instruct John to write in verse 1, the words of Him who has the seven spirits of God in the seven stars. This is what He has John say and write to Sardis. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Right? They were deceived. They believed the reputation. They believed that they were alive, but in fact, they were dead. And this leads us to our first point in this morning which is a dead church. A dead church. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but aside from the, those words that we hear that Christ will pronounce to those on that last day who come before Him, do you remember where He'll say, Depart from Me! I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. I'm not sure outside of those words that there is any greater rebuke than this that you believe yourself to be alive, but you are dead. And just imagine what the church of Sardis is is thinking as they're hearing the book of Revelation read aloud to them by the minister of the church. Just think about it as as they hear the first four letters being read and they hear the commendation and the praise that God gives to those churches. They must be sitting there thinking to themselves, Oh goody, I can't wait to what the Lord is going to say about us. Right? Perhaps even arrogantly thinking, if He said these good things about them, think about the even higher praise we will receive because we have a, a great reputation that the other churches do not have. But instead, what do we see, brothers and sisters? Instead, what we see is that Jesus snatches the wind from their sails. Right? He, he, he crushes their ego. He deflates their ego. And in lieu of praise, all He offers to them is soul-crushing rebuke. Just think about it. To have the sovereign God, right, the bestower of life, the rewarder of men, the One who knows the intention of the heart, say to you who thinks you are alive and healthy and well, no, you are not alive, but you are dead. Think about how humbling that must be to those in Sardis hearing that message. Oftentimes, 
when we hear about someone being dead, right, we think about that person as being someone who kind of is in the world, uh, who you wouldn't know is a Christian because they're so taken up with their sin unless they told you they were a Christian. Because otherwise you would never assume it of them. That's oftentimes what we think about when we think about a dead Christian. But that's not what we are presented with in our text here today. In fact, the opposite of true is true of Sardis, isn't it? Right? The opposite is true of Sardis. They were doing everything a good Christian ought to do and saying what good Christians ought to say. And how do we know this? Because they had a reputation. What was their reputation? Was it that they were liars? Was it that they were false Christians? Was it that they were hypocrites? No, it was that they were alive based upon their works. But what we need to see, brothers and sisters, is that the problem of the church in Sardis is that they were too concerned with human approval and not with divine approval. And you ask, well, how do we know that? Well, because of this. Sardis is located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. It's located about 50 miles east of Ephesus. And yet, in this letter to Sardis, they are not dealing with any of the persecution, trials, and sufferings that any of the other Christian churches were dealing with in that area. And so we might ask, why is that? Right? Why are they the only church here of these five who are experiencing peace when everyone else is experiencing hostility? And the answer is because they weren't being light bearers. Right? They weren't being light bearers. They weren't calling people to repentance and faith. Right? In Sardis, you had the largest Jewish population in Asia Minor. And yet, why were the Jews not slandering them? It's because they weren't calling the Jews to faith in the one and only Messiah in whom they have rejected. Now surely, brothers and sisters, there are some in the church of Sardis, as there is with most every church. You, you had those people who were absolutely dead in their trespasses and sins. You, you had people who were unregenerate in the church of Sardis. But we're not to understand that that is what Christ is speaking about here in this letter. But rather, we are to take the deadness that He's speaking about kind of with hyperbolically. Right? In an attempt, he's using it hyperbolically in an attempt to, to shock them. Right? To, to, to bring about their repentance and their return to Christ. Right? That is what he, he is using this for. And how do we know that? Well, because look at verse 2. He tells them they were to wake up and strengthen what already remained in them. In verse 3, remember what you already received. And so we need to understand that the deadness of the church was lifelessness. right? It was spiritual declension. It was spiritual backsliding. It was decay that had formed and that had abounded within the saints in that church. right? The, the discharge of their duty was, was happening without any liveliness of faith in Christ. It wasn't motivated by desire to please God, but rather motivated simply to please man. And at the end of the day, who was leading it all? Who was leading the charge at the church in Sardis? It was the pastor. It was the minister. John writes to the pastor of the church 
as well as the church at large. I know your works, your reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It's true that churches oftentimes take upon themselves right, the characteristics, uh, the teaching, the, the faith, the practices of the minister. And rightfully so, that's how it should be. So long as the minister is walking in the ways of the Lord, as he has been called to do. It was John Owen in rule number two in that little paper, uh, Puritan paperback series uh, that he wrote a book entitled Duties of Christian Fellowship. Where in rule two he says this, the pastor's way of life is to be observed and carefully followed to the extent he walks in the ways of Christ. And this is scriptural. We should have no problem with this. Paul to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their faith and imitate their faith. To Timothy, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.12, Set for yourselves an example before the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Peter, writing to the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, tells them, be examples to the flock. Right? An exemplary way of life is required for anyone who handles the holy and sacred things of the Lord. This is what we have been unpacking and uncovering in the book of Leviticus, isn't it? As we have been reading about what is required of the priest week after week in our reading of the law. And so what the ministers in Sardis are guilty of then was teaching right doctrine, but walking crookedly in their own hearts. It was John Owen who said, God will not accept our tongues when the devil has our hearts. Right, the pastors of this church were dead pastors. They were unfaithful to God and they were unfaithful to His church. And you might ask, how so? They had a reputation of being alive. Well, they failed in watching over themselves and watching over their flock. Right, they failed in disciplining the wayward. They failed for being in private prayer for their flock. They failed in being diligent in their study of Scriptures in private. Right, all things that ministers are called to do when nobody's eyes are looking. They did not lead well. Where there ought to have been great zeal for the glory of God, there was indifference. Where there should have been vigor, there was slackness and laziness. For a living minister loves the Word of God. He attends to it daily. He instructs both young and old. He visits His people. He serves His people. He cares for His people. He stays with them early and late. All because He views them as Christ views them, which is His own precious flock. The minister is to live as an example before the eyes of the people, adorning good works. If anyone is expected to live constantly with their eyes seeking the kingdom of God and living in holiness and purity, it is the minister.
oftentimes I stand up here and I proclaim things to you guys all the time through the, through the Word and, and, and know that as I proclaim it to you, proclaiming it to myself as well. But as I read this this, follow, this past week, this was a reproof to the minister. It made me, myself, stop and, and think and examine my own self and my own shortcomings. And brothers and sisters, to the extent that I have failed, to the extent that I have not led well, to the extent that I have not lived up to my calling, which, brothers and sisters, I assure you I have not. I have fallen short. I ask for your forgiveness. But what we also see is that the church is called to the same high standard as the minister, which is why they are guilty as well. If he is a dead minister, they are a dead church. Right? They did not keep their garments clean. They did not walk uprightly before the Lord in their heart. Their faith and practice had lost their fervor for God. Their flesh had been dominated by the world. There was no battling and contending for the faith in Sardis. They were happy to just do the motions and be patted on the back and have the approval of men. They were not willing to dig deep into their hearts to examine their hearts. They were like that room that we all have in our house. We always keep the door closed. Because if you open it, it's a complete mess behind there. And so we like to keep it closed. right? We like to keep it closed because when you keep it closed, everything looks beautiful, doesn't it? And you don't want to open it. You don't want to deal with the mess. You don't want to see the mess. You want to suppress it. Forget about it. You just want to see the external beauty. And I ask, are are any of you guilty of that in your spiritual walk? That you simply seek the approval of men. That you never search your own heart. You search for your own sin. That you never dive deep into your motives and your intentions. That you're happy with simply having your back patted by people who see your works and approve of them but not caring about what God sees and having God's divine approval. Right? If that is you, that's a dangerous place to be. Because that's a sign of spiritual backsliding. That's a sign of spiritual decay. And what ultimately can that lead to? You being deceived by those things. Believing like Sardis that you were alive when in fact you were dead. And almost the whole church of Sardis was dead. Yet, a flicker of hope remained. Like a bad tooth, a decayed tooth that you go to the dentist to have treated. And he's able to not have to extract it, but he's able to actually fix it and help bring it back to life so that it does not die and have to be pulled out. So too, the decay in the church of Sardis was not so great that there couldn't be treatment for them. Right? The light in Sardis was not completely blown out yet, which is why Christ can say in verse 2, right, to this church in slumber, wake up! Wake up! And this leads us to our second point, which is a call to awaken. 
A call to awaken. Please, brothers and sisters, look with me at verses 2 and 3. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The Greek word here for wake up can also be translated uh, be alert or, or be watchful. This is the same word that Jesus uses in speaking to His disciples in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 38 where He says to them, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. It's the same word that Paul uses when he talks to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13. Watch and stand firm in the faith. It's a spiritual watchfulness, brothers and sisters, that we are being exhorted to exercise a watchfulness that consists in taking care of your own soul so that no evil will ever befall it. That is the watchfulness that the Christian is called to. To take care of your soul so that no evil will ever befall it. You need to understand that your spiritual life is precious. It is the most precious thing that you have. It is a precious jewel, a precious treasure that forces in this world and people in this world are looking to strip you of and to destroy. Which is why we're told in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, keep thy heart with all diligence. You see, brothers and sisters, as believers, we ought to know the value of the life that we have been given. And yet, too often, so many who call themselves Christians take it for granted. What is that one slogan of American Christianity? Once saved, always saved. Now, in a sense, it's true if we know what we're, what we're talking about. Right? The, the belief that if one is a true believer that they will not fall away, is absolutely true. But what is also true is that the one who is a true believer is going to value the new life that they have been given. Right? The, the one who is a believer is going to see it precious in this sight. going to see that what God gave to them is, is, is precious. And so they're not going to injure it. They're not going to harm it. They're not going to destroy it. But rather, they're going to nurture it. They're going to increase it. They're going to grow it. They're not going to do harm to it and let it wither and die as the saints in Sardis were in danger of doing. Which is why Christ then says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now we have to ask, you know, what does Christ mean when He says this? Well, I want us to first understand what it doesn't mean. He's not scolding the church saying, why aren't your works perfect yet? He isn't saying, why haven't you come to sinless perfection? In the Heidelberg Catechism, question 114, the question is asked, can those who are converted to God keep His commandments perfectly? The Reformed answer to that is no. Even the holiest men, while in this life, only have the smallest beginnings of obedience. Right? The holiest of those amongst you here today are only scratching the the surface of the obedience that Christ demands of us. Because He demands perfect obedience. You and I only scratch 
the very surface of that. And so we have to ask, what then is Christ saying when He says these things? Well, what He's saying is that you have neglected to do the things that you have been called to do. Right? You have not kept on doing the things that you first did when you were converted. Right? You have not continued in that work. You have not uh, completed that work that I have given you to do, which is to persevere in that Christian work until the end. Right? They have stopped doing it. And what they did now, they did not do for the glory of God. They did not do with a desire to please Him in body and soul. Right? Their sacrifice to the Lord, what Christ says is, your sacrifice to Me is found wanting. Right? Although you have human approval, you do not have divine approval. And so He tells them the same thing almost that He told the church in Ephesus. Which was what? Remember what you received and heard and keep it and repent. Admonishing them even further saying, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know the hour I come against you. Now, this ought to draw our minds immediately back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul says to the saints there in chapter 5 verse 2 concerning the final return of Christ, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But as we think about those words, we also are not to forget the promise that comes just two verses later to the saints in Thessalonica when Paul says in verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to come is a surprise to you like a thief. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. Let us keep awake. I wonder if there are any consciences this day that are, that are pricked by these words that we have read this morning. As you examine your own life, does only a flicker of light remain? Have you forgotten the Gospel? Have you forgotten the good news that has come to you? Have you forgotten the promises of the Gospel? Have you forgotten why you've been called to live in holiness? Primarily, for the sake of God. He has called you to it. What does Paul say? To live is Christ. The purpose... For living in holiness is to be like Christ. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ as we are being fitted for heaven. And so we are to live. And so to live then is to walk with Christ. Is to have Christ before our eyes every day. And to do so for the sake of Christ so long as we have our breath. Have you here today forgotten this? And instead, walk with the world and seek the approval of the world instead of the approval of Christ. Instead of walking with Christ by your side every day of your life. Have you lost your zeal and fervor for the things of God? Have you lost your zeal for His church? Have you lost your zeal for reading God's Word and for meditating upon His Word? Have you lost your zeal for prayer and for the fellowship of the saints? Have you lost your zeal for confessing Christ before the world? Have you allowed your light which you have been given to reflect the glory of Christ? Have you allowed that light 
to be placed under a basket instead of being put upon a nightstand as it was intended to be so that all around you can see and feel that light. If so, Christ calls upon us to remember Right? Remember what you have received. Remember the grace you have been given. Remember the mercies that you have been shown. Remember the promises which are yours in Christ Jesus. But also remember the warnings. Don't forget the warnings. And then repent for your unfaithfulness. And then repent for your unfaithfulness. And awaken your faith that you allowed to dwindle and fade. Now, don't mistake my words. That is not a call to pick yourselves up by your own bootstraps. Neither is that what Christ is calling upon the church in Sardis to do when He tells them to keep what you heard and awaken. But rather, it's a, it's a call, it's a charge to look to Christ Jesus the Savior, the only justifier of the ungodly, the only mediator between God and men. The one who, who pours out the Spirit upon the church. Right? It's a call to look to Him. This is why He uses this self-designation. The one who has the seven spirits. Right? The, the one who holds the Holy Spirit and who gives Him to His church. So that when you read this rebuke, you would not look inwardly, but you would look to Christ. The one who pours Him out super abundantly upon you. And you need the superabundance of the Spirit if you want to walk obediently before your Lord. And so that's what He's calling us to do. Not to pick yourself up, but to look to Christ, to flee to Christ, to ask Christ to pour out His Spirit, to increase the power of the Spirit in the church so that we might walk obediently as He has called us to. So that we might with boldness confess His name to the world. You cannot do that on your own. You need the Spirit's power. And the only way that you find it is through looking to Christ who pours them out upon His church. Christ likewise uses that self-designation. The words of Him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars to cause them to remember that it is God who works in them to will and work after His good pleasure. And he uses this, this, this self-designation to remind the church of who the fountain of all grace is and to whom you must go to obtain grace. And to those in Sardis who, who hear these words and heed His command and flee to Him, they will prove themselves to be true believers. But those who do not heed His commands, who do not listen to His word, who persist in this dying backsliding, decaying faith, if they continue without repentance, they will prove themselves to have never have been a child of God. Which are you? Which are you? Now as hard as it was to, to hear that for, for the majority in Sardis, it wasn't as hard to hear for the few. And this takes us to our third and final point this morning which is a, a precious promise to those who are alive. A precious promise to those who are alive. Look with me please at verses 4 to the end. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, 
And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ says that there are a few in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. By implication, what does that likewise tell us? That there are many in Sardis who have soiled their garments. But what is true about both of those groups? They all are wearing the same garments. Which is to say what? That there are many in Sardis who were backsliding Christians. But they were Christians nonetheless. Right? All of them wore the same uniform which was Christ. But not all. And in fact, only a slim number, only a few represented those uniforms well. It is not that these few were perfect or sinless, but that these few were found faithful. Right? They remained faithful to Christ in the world. They kept Christ as the apple of their eye. They remembered the Gospel and its promises. They did not lose their love and their fervor and their zeal for the Lord. They continued on in their confession of faith before others. They were not just concerned externally with the approval of men, but they were concerned that the Lord would see internally what was inside of them. And they would have divine approval as well. And to them, He says what? They will walk with Me in white. For they are worthy. We ask, worthy how? Worthy why? Worthy because of Christ. Worthy because of Christ. In Revelation 5, the multitude declare, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, and it is by His blood that people are ransomed. Anyone who is counted worthy is counted worthy not because your works are better than someone else's. You are not counted worthy because you never miss a Sunday at church. You are not counted worthy because of your own righteousness. You are only counted worthy because you have been united through faith to Christ who alone is worthy. You are counted worthy because of Him, because of His works, because of what He did, because of His righteousness, which is both perfect and substitutionary. So that when God looks upon you, what He sees well-pleasing is the works of His Son. Whatever is well-pleasing in the sight of God is the works of the Son that has been credited to us that the Father sees. Right? We have been justified by the blood of God. He likewise stood before the, the judge. Right? Christ stood before judge to take upon Himself our debt. And so what we also need to see when Christ talks about walking with Him in white and this imagery of, of, of white is not only that it stands for that we will be you know, pure and holy, but likewise, and I think I've mentioned this before, it is talking likewise about acquittal in a court of law. Remember, that in, in ancient times, in a courtroom setting, after a trial, there would be two stones, a black one and a white one. And if the black one was exposed, it meant you were guilty. If the white one was exposed, it meant that you were free and innocent. 
That's what He's saying here to the saints. You will walk with Me in white, for you are innocent, having My righteousness and the forgiveness of sin as I have taken upon the curse that was due to you. Likewise, white is also symbolic of heaven. White is also symbolic of heaven. We see this in the depiction of the one who conquers. What does He say of Him? He will be clothed in white garments. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, the multitudes that stand before the throne worshiping are what? They're wearing white garments. As John in Revelation 19 sees the heavens open and Christ comes down, what does He come down upon? A white horse. So we need to see white is symbolic of heaven as well, which is Christ then communicating what to these saints? Right? What He is promising then then to them is, is heaven and Himself and glory and the consummation of all of His graces to them. And in a sense, what we also need to see though is that everything that is promised to us here is in part already ours. It's in part already ours. If you are a believer, you have already been clothed in Christ's righteousness. You already walk with Christ. You have already been made a conqueror. But these are not empty promises, brothers and sisters. What we need to see is that what He's saying to them is that He's promising them the continuation of this until the consummation. When all that was promised to you is perfected. And that is what He is promising to them. The perfection of every promise and grace that He has given to them. Right? What He has begun in them in part will be completed when He returns to bring you to the place that He has prepared for you. A place that He has prepared before the foundation of the world. For a people that He had chosen before the foundation of the world. Which is why Christ can say to those in white that He will never blot their name out from the book of life. A book that was prepared before the foundation of the world. A book that was compiled before anyone ever did anything right or wrong, before you and I or any person ever existed. Why? Why could it be completed? Because it wasn't based upon you and I, but rather it was based upon the good pleasure of God in sending His Son to redeem those whom He had chosen. That is why the book of life could already be etched in stone, never to be removed or erased. What a comfort to the saints in Sardis. For them to know that Christ knew them individually. He knew them by name. He knew who He came and died for. He knew who it is that He has redeemed. What assurance for these saints to know and to understand that when Christ looked upon them, He's seen the beauty of His excellence alive and well inside of them. And that they can know that it was impossible to ever have their names removed from that book of life because it was written there by God Himself. A God who does not make mistakes and a God who accomplishes everything that He has purposed to accomplish. And so, brothers and sisters, do you have that assurance? Do you have the assurance that your name is etched in the book of life? Do you have the assurance that when Christ returns, that when He looks upon you, He will see the beauty of His excellence in you? Or will He see someone who is dead?
As we draw to a close, I want us to see one final promise that He gives to them. And that is that everyone whose name is in the book of life, He will confess their name before His Father, He says. What a consolation that was to these saints. What a consolation. In a dead church, in a wicked world, Christ did not clump them in with everyone else. And although that they were pursuing the Christian life all alone, they could know that they were not alone. For Christ had seen them. And Christ was walking with them. And without shame or embarrassment, when that great day comes, at that great white throne of judgment, the Son will happily, readily, unabashedly, likewise, confess their name before the Father. And all of you who believe here today, likewise, have that same promise. Today we live in a day and age of watered-down Christianity. Right? We live in a day and age in which there are a lot of dead Christians all around us. But know this, we must continue pursuing Christ and His glory every single day. For it does not go unseen by God. Right? He sees it. And He will bless it. And, and as He promised that by His grace, those who will continue in it will walk with Him in white and will be clothed with Him in His righteousness, in those white garments. And that those who ever so live now on earth with His name upon their lips, that you can know that when Christ returns, that you will hear your name upon His lips as He confesses you before His Father. May we look forward to that day with great anticipation as saints were watchful to not soil our garments most desirous of God's approval. Please let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the rebuke. We thank You for the conviction that the Spirit brings to our hearts. We ask, Lord, that You would increase Your your grace within us. Father, that You would cause us to be a, a people who examine ourselves daily and often. That we would deal with our sin. That You would show to us our true state. That we would be a people who no matter what others are doing around us, would be a people who are desirous for the approval of God before the approval of men. And so, Father, we ask that You would uh, keep this mind in us. That You would uh, put Christ before our eyes and cause us to walk with Christ every day of our lives. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.